This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we continue our series inspired by the Maine Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focused its work on the continuing practice of removing Native children from their families. Today I'm going to be talking with Jamie Bissonette-Louis about some of the recent history in tribe-state relations in Maine that set the context for the TRC. Jamie Bissonette-Louis is Abenaki, and she's the chair of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. The commission is an intergovernmental entity comprised of equal numbers of tribal and state representatives charged with the review of the laws that resolved the Maine Indian Land Claims lawsuit in 1980. Jamie also coordinates the Healing Justice Program for the American Friends Service Committee in New England. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Jamie. Thank you. So I know one of the issues that is at stake in so many um, conflicts and difficulties between the tribes and the state is the issue of sovereignty. And I want to begin by asking you, what are the different ways that the tribes and the state even approach the understanding of what sovereignty means? Well, I can't pretend to speak for either the tribes or the state, but I can speak about my perspective around the um, the issue of sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty is uh, a crucial, iconic concept in indigenous relations in the United States. And for me, it's also ironic because uh, if you look at indigenous languages, there, there is no direct translation of the word sovereignty. And the concepts attached to sovereignty by governmental entities are very Western concepts, you know, framed in terms of access to power. And when you look at translating that into an indigenous perspective, it is, it's not power that's key, it's responsibility that's key. So I look at sovereignty as the capacity to exercise that responsibility, that responsibility to take care of your people, the land, the life that lives upon that land, and to be able to self-determine concrete solutions to problems that your people face. And, uh, and that space between those two definitions and those two ways of thinking and being is where the conflict in tribal state relations exists. And maybe can you give me an example of that? How do you mean? Even if you look at the saltwater fishery conflict, um, you know, of the last three years. What you consistently heard Passamaquoddy fishers and Passamaquoddy leadership saying is that we are implementing a community fishery in our ancestral land. And the purpose of participating in this communal fishery is to allow equal access and sharing of the resource so that we can better feed 
our people and raise the economic standard in our community. And what the state was saying is you must be regulated, you can only take so much, you can, and we have the authority to tell you how to engage with this resource. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like the Passamaquoddy were pushing for more. They actually were very constrained. And they're, um, because of this responsibility to their territory and all that live upon it, their conservation constraints on their communal, not commercial, communal fishery were quite different. And that concept just could not be gotten across. It didn't fit with the dominant concept of individual fishers trying to make as much money as they can. Right. So you have such a clash of fundamental worldviews and assumptions mm -hmm. about each other's motives. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like a fundamental lack of trust about what the intentions of the Passamaquoddy were for this water in terms of overfishing. I mean, I'm just thinking about what those regulations even exist for. Is that, am I understanding you? Um, you know, it, you're right. It involves trust, but it's, from my perspective, a struggle over authority and the capacity to decree how things will be done and the um, lack of space for alternative ways of knowing. And within that, there's this concept of superiority. Our way is superior to yours. So in a way, the tragedy of what you're saying is that in a struggle over authority or control right. based on notions of superiority, there's almost no flexibility to create something that really works for people. There's a huge loss of opportunity to develop mutually beneficial solutions and unwillingness to acknowledge that the tribes using their ancestral wisdom might actually come up with a much better solution. I mean, this fisheries conflict, the issue of Passamaquoddy um, self-determination of their reserved right to fish in the ocean was the first issue brought to the Tribal State Commission. I see. So you've been working on this for decades. Well, the Tribal State Commission has. Yes, not you personally, yeah. but Mitzik has. Mitzik has been working yes, on this for and, decades. And, and so let's actually set the context for Mitzik. Cause so the year is 1980, and together, I understand, three of the tribes brought a lawsuit to the state of Maine. Well, actually, it started with one. Um, in the uh, early 1970s, the Passamaquoddy uh, brought suit against the state of Maine for the return of their ancestral land um, and a monetary settlement. Uh, and the monetary settlement was to compensate for the way the state's Indian agent managed their resources uh, from the time that Maine became a state to the present. And when the Passamaquoddy um, brought this lawsuit, very soon they were joined by the Penobscot. And the lawsuit grew 
um, they were able to lay claim to approximately two-thirds of the state of Maine. And this lawsuit prevailed. And it prevailed in federal district court. And ultimately, the U.S. government was required to bring suit against the state of Maine for the return of this land and, and the compensation of the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot people. And then in, at the very end, um, the, the malice seat brought forward um, their claim. And, uh, but really, if we're talking about sovereignty as an exercise of responsibility for your family, for your land, for your people. Um, to me, the story of the land claims, it rests on that. The, the um, dispute began with a very gentle Passamaquoddy man, um, George Stevens, who had a large family. And he needed to expand his garden so that he could better feed his kids. And so as he was digging up the land for that, a non-Native man who had somehow gotten um, jurisdiction over a piece of Passamaquoddy land said to him, you can't do that. Your garden is now on my land and I'm going to be putting a road through here. And George says, it's not your land. This is Passamaquoddy land, and I need to feed my children. And so eventually police were called, and this man who was exercising his responsibility to take care of his children through a very fundamental act of constructing a garden on his ancestral territory, recognized Passamaquoddy land, was arrested for building a garden. And so that arrest uh, spawned a conversation. And then a Passamaquoddy elder came up with a shoebox, and in the shoebox was a treaty, a treaty that hadn't been seen since the late 1700s, which gave the land to the Passamaquoddy in consideration for their support of the Revolutionary Army during the um, Revolutionary War. And this, it is this treaty that sparked the land claims, I see. I mean, this was huge. Uh, property couldn't be transferred. Title was clouded everywhere. Right, so suddenly the, the sort of right to private property, you know, that's so protected in American law was really in question for everybody. And so, okay, so fast forwarding. So this, from this one act of this man trying to extend his garden and trying to be a responsible father and feed his children. I want to, you know, tie yes. that in because yes. that's, that is sovereignty right there. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So he is exercising his sovereignty. It provokes this whole series of events that lead to a, a lawsuit that a, a federal judge upholds, the federal government had to sue the state of Maine to get them to actually respect this. The federal government was ordered to sue the state of Maine, and Carter set up a, a committee on the Maine Indian claims. Uh, and that committee was charged with 
moving negotiations along. And if, of course, the negotiations couldn't succeed, then uh, the lawsuit would move forward. Uh, but at the same time, there were uh, termination laws in force, which gave the Congress the right to terminate tribes. Um, to terminate tribes? To terminate tribes. What does uh, that mean? Well, the language is uh, as rapidly as possible to make Indians within the territorial limits of the United States subject to the same laws and entitled to the same privileges and responsibilities as are applicable to other citizens of the United States. So, in other words, taking over all of the tribes. And so this policy of termination was, was real. Ultimately, 109 tribes were terminated. They were declared no longer in existence. And so these, nego pressure these negotiations were being undertaken under threat of termination. And if you look at the timing, you know, Carter signed the, the um, federal law in the waning moments of his administration, and Reagan was coming in. And Reagan, you know, he, he had said, if I become president, I will terminate the main tribes. This helps me because two weeks ago in my interview with Kisantanamuk, he explained that from his perspective, the Indian Land Claim Settlement Act was essentially invalid because he felt that the whole thing had happened under such duress and the pressure on the people to decide and accept it was so overwhelming that it really was not an, a legitimate decision in his, in his view. But we didn't have time to get into an explanation of what that duress was and what the pressure was. Well, I think, there, yeah, the, the time pressure was, was huge, and the, the tribes were... Uh, asked to approve a law, that main implementing act which puts the agreed-upon resolution of this lawsuit, you know, into practice. I know there were lots of parts to it, and it's very complicated, but what were the primary resolutions of this lawsuit? Yeah. I mean, I understand there was $81 million that was transferred. Well, like, there was the 80, that's, that's a really, I'm glad you started there, because there's this thought, um, you know, in one conversation with one of the assistant attorney generals, um, he said to me, you know, the tribes, uh, they, they took all this money and they got all this land and, you know, this is the deal. And in reality, there, the tribes took no money. You know, there was a huge, you know, like you said, $81 million. I'm not sure that's exactly correct. But, you know, uh, I think um, $53 million of it was set aside to, for the federal government to buy land back for the tribes at prevailing market price. And so from, from the paper companies. Oh. So if you ask about who profited from this, the paper companies. Yeah. I see. So they were paid for land that the tribes were asserting they had never lost in the first of. place. I in see. the first place. So the federal government compensates the paper companies for the return of land. And then, you know, the remainder is put into trust held by the federal government, and the interest from that trust is released 
annually to the tribes. Oh, I and see. So looking at the, on paper, it looks like the tribes were given this huge windfall of money to do with as they will. But in fact, that's not what happened oh, at all. No, no. And the, the, the money in trust is to acquire more land. And you can only access that through, you know, a Baroque process. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's frustrating because not only did the tribes not take money, but they agreed to settle for jurisdiction over a much smaller amount of land than the federal courts had acknowledged they were entitled to. And, and they did this for many good reasons, you know. Um, like what? Well, I think that, um, well, as we said, the threat of termination. But, you know, there's when tribal territory and tribal waters exist, there's the capacity to protect what's sacred. And that is the land, the water, the people. And so that's what you see right now in this conflict over water quality standards. The tribe's status as federally recognized tribes with land tenure, with acknowledged tribal waters, and with a reserved right to hunt, fish, and gather. The federal government has the um, responsibility to make sure that all those things are guarded. And if the water becomes too poisonous for people to eat the fish, and every citizen in the state of Maine should be sitting on the edge of their chairs right now because the water is too poisonous. If you're pregnant or if you're under the age of eight, you're not supposed to eat freshwater fish in Maine. I remember and the eye-opening moment of going to my doctor when I was pregnant and receiving a pamphlet mm -hmm. that said, do not eat any freshwater fish in the state of Maine because it is too contaminated with right. mercury. It will harm your unborn child. Right. And the reality of that, I'd never received anything like that before. To be told right. this by my doctor was bone-chilling. But here is where, you know, having jurisdiction over significant tracts of land and having identified tribal waters allows the tribe to exercise their primary responsibility. Let's go back to the primary responsibility to the, the people, the land, and the water. And those are living entities. Those are relatives. And so when the water is unhealthy, the people are unhealthy. And it, it's deep. You know, there are fish, in Aboriginal fish in the state of Maine that have sustained the Aboriginal people in the state of Maine. Um, they are, you know, there's the alewife, which is known to the Passamaquoddy as the fish that feeds all, uh, because they were so abundant, and in times where food wasn't available, they were. And so when these sources of food, and this was part of what we brought to the United Nations, that all traditional food sources have been compromised. Fiddleheads, which everybody eats with abandon, often grow in marshy areas that are contaminated with PCBs. That, that's, a, that's a reality for all of us. Moose liver, which is a delicacy, and it's also like a tonic. It's full of incredible uh, minerals and you know, things that revitalize your body uh, you know, at a time, winter, when food might not be all that abundant. 
it's so full of cadmium that it will kill you if you eat it. And so these, these are the realities. And so, you know, and, and this responsibility is probably the kernel of the conflict. When you say this responsibility, what do you mean? The responsibility that the tribal leaders have to develop working solutions for their people. And oftentimes that's reduced you know, to a discussion about casinos, but we've seen in the last year that it is so much more than that. Uh, and also, we've also seen that the areas of collaboration, potential collaboration for mutual benefit for everyone are huge. So I want to look at the legacy of the Land Claim Settlement Act in terms of where we are today. Mm -hmm. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has issued their findings, including their first recommendation that sovereignty be taken seriously uh, in, in all matters. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear from you how you see the importance of the TRC and what impact you see it having going forward. Well, I was really pleased uh, and excited when I read the TRC report and um, read their recommendations, and it was abundantly clear that they not only looked at the child welfare issues, but that they looked at the context in which those issues developed. And this is something that the Tribal State Commission has put a lot of work into in the last five years. Um, the United States was visited by a special rapporteur, uh, James Anaya, um, from the United Nations. Uh, this is the first time an indigenous, uh, you know, a rapporteur on indigenous issues has visited the United States and done an assessment. And the Tribal State Commission was asked to present findings and so our primary, our central conclusion was that the effect of the implementation of the Maine Indian Claims Settlement is, in and of itself, constitutes a human rights violation. And we offered some evidence, sent in hundreds of pages of evidence of the socio and economic disparities endured in tribal communities in the state of Maine. And um, in the end, when, uh, you know, firstly, Anaya agreed with our assessment. But more than agree, when he wrote his country report to the United States, which is a summary of his visit, he raised three issues that needed to be addressed immediately and the effects of the Maine Indian land claims on tribal people in the state of Maine was one of those top three issues. So, um, What were the other two? The uh, Alaska settlement um, and the, I believe the, the other was the uh, Cherokee Freeman. I see. So one of the top three was looking at the impact of the Land Claim Settlement Act on Maine and particularly... Mm -hmm the way that it has impoverished the tribes. Mm -hmm. 
the way that it has you know put in place a structure that ensures that socio and economic disparities health disparities will continue to exist so at this point we have this report from the UN we have this report from the truth and reconciliation commission all affirming the same thing that can I just interrupt you for one second? Yeah. Because this isn't new. You know, they, there no. was a, a civil rights report, and civil rights commission report in 1978 that said the same thing. Um, there was the at loggerheads report commissioned by the legislature in 1997 that said the same thing. And there was the tribal state work group in 2007 that said the same thing. Um, you know, there's the Anaya letter. There's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this is one of the pieces that I think as, you know, I think the state of Maine needs to focus on is that you have a consistent assessment that there are serious issues that must be addressed for human beings to be especially indigenous human beings to be able to live well and on their own land with way past time to develop solutions, way past time. And so for, for those of us who are really taking this in today and hearing mm -hmm. about report after finding, after document, all concluding that this is an urgent problem that needs to get addressed. What is your request for people of goodwill who are hearing this that we can do to make sure that we, uh, as a state, as a people, respond and do the right thing? Well, I think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has offered, you know, a highly publicized blueprint. And if pe people of goodwill really do need to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report um, and look at all of the recommendations, all of them are important. But their first recommendation is to respect tribal sovereignty and commit to resolve and uphold federal state and tribal jurisdictions and protocols at both the state and the local levels. So I encourage Mainers to you know, go to uh, the Truth and Reconciliation website, mainwabanakitrc.org, and download the report. If you don't have time to read the whole thing, and it is really readable and beautifully written, um, at least read the executive summary, the findings, and the recommendations, and really think about what they're saying. And, you know, one of the takeaways that I came away from just listening to some of the testimony that was public was, you know, I, I think a lot of attention gets put on the really horrible things that might have happened to someone in foster care. But the real the, the constant refrain was the taking itself was the harm. And, um, the removing the child from their family. From, from Not just from their family, from their culture. You know, from their way of knowing, their way of being, 
uh, you know, removing the, uh, their identity. Jamie Bissonette-Louis, thank you so much. It's clear to me that you have such a depth of knowledge about this that I've, I've really learned from you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. If you like the show and you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can also find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, and the work of breaking silence in order to heal. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>